right, amen. Amen. Thank you for taking that time uh, to be silent. Okay, so we're in the third week of Advent, uh, which is that four-week, I guess, season of preparation, celebration, anticipation, expectation. Uh, And um, for those of you who uh, live in the world and go out occasionally, I know some of us stay at home as much as possible, you know that we're in the Christmas season. And you've probably seen a sign that goes somewhat like this. Tis the season for, and what would you say? Uh, spending. Tis the season for, um, for doubling down on our idolatry. Of matri- no, I'm just kidding. What's, tis the season for what? What would, what would you say? Um, my hearing is kind of bad, so I'm not actually hearing anybody. Uh, I hear that you're talking to me, but one of the most frequent things that I see when I see tis the season for blank, I see joy. Yes? Tis the season for joy. No one's ever seen that before? Nobody? I was passing by Unitarian Church, and I saw tis the season for joy on it. Um, Tis the season for joy. And let me just ask you this question. Do you think Christmas is the season for joy? Yeah, right? Uh, Sort of. It's pretty mixed, though, right? Would you say it's pretty mixed? Some of you are like, yeah, I think it feels pretty mixed. I mean, like, here's the thing that I know about Christmas. It's become pretty secularized, yes. Uh, So we know that Christmas is a lot of things. In my experience as a pastor uh, with with you is that this season is joyous, but it's also harried. It's also busy. It's also um, sometimes very stressful. Uh, It's also the season for sadness for many of us. Many of us uh, at Christmas season, feel acutely the loss of some of our dear loved ones. So it's very, very mixed. Uh, and actually, like if, if you de- describe this season, you might describe it somehow like this. It's a season of cross pressures. The pressure on one hand to hold on to the true meaning of Christmas and the pressure on the other hand to buy all the things. Yes? Uh, which creates this extraordinary conflict inside of us. So I want to talk about joy this morning. I want to talk about joy. I want to talk about joy, uh, what it is, how to hold on to it, uh, what this season is truly, truly about. And as I do that, I just want to ask you a question. How do you define joy? Take a moment and... Think for yourself, how do you define joy? How do you define joy? How do you define it? Silence. (laughs) Maybe you could turn to your neighbor and say, "Uh, here's how I define joy. Um, I'm going to wait for him to say a definition because that seems like that's what he's about to do. But anyway, could you turn to your neighbor and say, here's what I think joy is like. You turn to your neighbor. I love the murmur. The murmuring. Are you all hearing the murmuring? Various, joyous, you know? Are you hearing the mur- murmuring? Okay, well, 
So I've come armed with some definitions, which is probably no surprise to you. Uh, And I've come armed with not just one definition, but lots of them. Because if you were probably to describe joy, if you talked to 10 different people, you'd probably hear 10 different definitions. Yes? Because joy sort of defies explanation. Uh, I like this definition from the folks at the Bible Project. Joy is a lasting emotion that comes from the choice to trust that God will fulfill his promises. Uh, Part of the reason why I like this definition is because, did you notice, Uh, the Bible product does not define what the emotion is. It says a lasting emotion. Basically, the only thing that the Bible project is saying is that, about joy, is that it's lasting. You know, um, joy is a lasting or enduring emotion that comes from us because of our faith in a good God. Uh, So joy, uh, some people define joy as like the ineffable good feeling that issues from us in our souls that can be present even when we're sad. Have you ever experienced joy when you were sad? Uh, C.S. Lewis tells us that joy is the serious business of heaven. Uh, And by serious, I don't think he means dour. I think he means it's serious in terms of its importance. So how do we know what joy is, because joy defies explanation. We almost need poets to help us understand it more than theologians. Or maybe we need a strange man who eats locusts and wild honey. You see, what's strange about this season of Advent, especially the readings that we've been looking at, is how many of you notice that they've really centered on John the Baptist? Have you noticed? Last week we talked about John the Baptist. This week we're talking about John the Baptist. And this week we are talking about John the Baptist like most of the global church is probably talking about John the Baptist. And why are we talking about John the Baptist? Why are we spending so much time talking about him? Why are we doing it? And what is the reason for it? As it turns out, I believe that the reason why we're talking about John the Baptist today is because his life is a parable of joy. He is joyous, like uh, the man from the wilderness who eats locusts and wild honey is here to teach us something about joy this morning. He is here to teach us that joy comes careening down the highway of God. Uh, We heard about John the Baptist last week from Jess, yes? Uh, Jess talked about how John is an exemplar, someone we should follow, how John the Baptist tells us to repent and prepare the way in our hearts from God. And if you read the story of John the Baptist, you probably wouldn't say, this is a super joyful guy. Uh, You probably would think, just like Fred Beekner says, that he preached fire and brimstone every time. Uh, You might remember that he called the Pharisees, the religious establishment, a brood of vipers snakes. Uh, He probably was an Enneagram 8. He challenged Jesus. He challenged, by the way, Herod for taking his brother's wife. That didn't go so well for him, by the way. Uh, He got beheaded. Joy is hardly the word that you'd use to describe John the Baptist, but he is joyous. And we actually get some of the most scintillating words about joy from, from John the Baptist in the whole New Testament. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, at one point, we read in John chapter 3 that Jesus, uh, Jesus' disciples are baptizing. And, his, and John, the Baptist's disciples, are indignant for him. And so then they say uh, to him, hey, look, you know, that, that, that dude that you testified about on the other side of Jordan, look, everyone is going to him. And here's how John replies. Just made mention 
of this last week. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now, everyone say it with me, complete. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. And then he goes on to say this very, very famous thing that just referenced last week about his humility. He must become greater, I must become less. So here's, here's John the Baptist. It's very clear. He knows what he's here on earth for. He says it over and over and over again. And then he says that the bride or the people of God, they belong to the bridegroom or Jesus. And so I am the friend of the bridegroom and I'm waiting and I'm listening for him. And, 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 and a, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And he's saying, hey, listen, that joy is mine. And it's joy that is full to the brim. Joy that has a sense of completion about it. So I want to talk about how John the Baptist this morning, his life is a parable of joy. And I think that our verses from the lectionary actually show us this. There are three things that I think that John the Baptist's life shows us about joy. So let's look at the passages from the lectionary um, that were just so beautifully read by young adults a little bit earlier this morning. Okay, so we start with John 1, 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Now, some of us know that these verses are actually in the great prologue of John chapter 1. So John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Some of you know that verse. Some of you heard that verse. Some of, many of you have been in church for a little bit, and you've heard something about John chapter 1. John chapter 1, the prologue of John, of John, it, or John by the way, I'm going to say John a lot today. So... John, the Gospel of John was written by John the Evangelist. Uh, we're talking about John the Baptist. So I'll say John the Evangelist and John the Baptist. And John the Evangelist is writing, and he writes this great prologue about who Jesus is. And it's packed through with dense theology. And people uh, for hundreds of years have, doing PhD, have been doing PhDs on John chapter 1. And in the midst of this great prologue about who Jesus is, about his massive importance to the fate of humanity come these three verses about John the Baptist in the midst of all of that. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. So why did he mention John the Baptist? It's an odd little aside in a magnificent set of verses. Uh, I make this inference. John the Baptist was a person of great consequence. Uh, he was, in fact, maybe almost exactly the person that the Jews might have expected to come as the Messiah. And scores of people had taken notice. Jews were being baptized in the Jordan because of John the Baptist. 
Now, in the practice of baptism back in that day, uh, Gentile proselytes would get baptized because they needed to be cleansed before they became Jewish, right? But Jews were actually getting in the water because of John's, John the Baptist's message and testimony. He was so utterly compelling and magnetic, which explains why the Jewish leaders sent people to ask him who he was. Now, this was John's testimony we keep reading. Uh, this a little bit further, uh, verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, what did they do? They sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was because they were so curious. Are you the one? He did not fail to confess, though. John the Baptist didn't. And confess freely, I'm not the one. I'm not the Messiah. They were very confused. So then they asked him, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Now, it's clear that the Jews wanted the Messiah to come. Uh, the Jews wanted liberation because they lived in occupied territory. I mean, they lived with the Romans under the thumb of Roman rule. So they wanted liberation from the Romans. So they had to find out, is this the one? Is this the Messiah? Are, they, are you going to deliver us from Roman rule? And he's like, nope. Sami. And then they asked him about Elijah because they knew that Malachi prophesied that Elijah would come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, Malachi chapter 4. So they were like, well, are you Elijah? And he's like, no, I'm not. Later we'd find out that Jesus would say that John the Baptist was Elijah, but that's not how he saw himself. They were like, well, if you're not Messiah, maybe you're Elijah who's going to come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, which surely must mean the judgment of the Romans. But John the Baptist says, no. And then they asked, well, are you the prophet? Which was a reference to another prophecy in Deuteronomy about a prophet who, like Moses, would speak the words of God. And John the Baptist seemed to fit the bill for all three. But what does the text tell us? The text tells us that John the Baptist testified without fail. He's never had one slip up. He was none of those things, which tells us something really important about joy. It's not located in our own influence. It's not located in our own status. It's not located in our own exaltation, in our own acclaim. John the Baptist, he didn't want any of the claim that so many of us are really eager for, the approbation of people. He didn't want it. And you consider how Jesus talked about John. Talk, this is how Jesus talked about John in Matthew 11. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. But how many of you know that's not how John the Baptist saw himself? He didn't go around saying, by the way, among those born of women, I am greater than you and you and you, all of you, all of you, I'm greater than all of you. He didn't do it. He abased himself. And that didn't rob him of his joy. In fact, I think that John the Baptist teaches us that that's the key to his joy. I mean, you see, we live in the kind of world today that tells us that joy must be hitched to the realization of our own desires. Uh, it's impossible to think about joy without thinking about self-actualization or self-fulfillment. The, the realization or the actualization of my own individual desire, that's what joy actually is. I think that's what the world would tell us because the world is thoroughly and totally taken over by a certain narrative. And the narrative that it's been taken over by is something called humanism. 
So humanism is the story or the idea that when it comes to humans, humans are the most important entity or being in the universe. Everything happens through humans rather than on the transcendent or divine. I mean, humanism is like humans are the center of the universe. And along with humanism comes this idea that not only are we the center of the universe, we can make our own happiness happen. We have in and of ourselves, in and of our individual selves, we have the ability to make everything that we want to happen, happen. That's humanism. And if we aren't making the thing that's within us happen, well, it's because we're oppressed or because we're traumatized or because there are external influences that are keeping us from doing that. I mean, Charles Taylor, a Canadian philosopher, he tells us this in another way. Uh, he says that it's almost, it's almost 100% true that every single person living in our modern world would actually say some version of this. I am free when I decide for myself what concerns me rather than being shaped by external influences. Let me say that again. Self-determining freedom is sort of the waters that we swim in. This is how people think about being human. To be truly human means that I am free when and only when I decide for myself what concerns me rather than being shaped by external influences. And nearly everyone would say, if you were to talk to anyone uh, on the street, um, do we do that, by the way, talk to people on the streets? Is that just an expression? Do you remember when people used to talk to each other on the streets? You know, um, what streets? We're not on the streets anymore. But anyway, maybe a chat forum. Oh, we don't do that anymore either, do we, really? Or maybe on social media. Anyway, if you were to ask someone that you didn't know very well, what does freedom look like? They'd probably agree with some version of self-determining freedom. And along with self-determining freedom comes an idea from John Stuart Mill called the harm principle. Basically, if you don't let me do what I want to do freely in and of myself, then you should be canceled or drawn and quartered. That is the narrative that most of us in the Western world live with. Is everybody with me? Is everybody like, yeah, I get that. Or this is the part when Ted talks about philosophy. And usually I turn my brain off. Um, anyway, this is why it's important. Here's why it's important. This narrative of self-actualization, self-realization, guess what? Uh, it's the idea of being happy in and of ourselves that we can accomplish or achieve our own happiness. Guess what? That, that narrative, it actually doesn't work. Because if you look at any of the data about happiness of people today, you will see numbers that should be troubling. You'll see a market rise in anxiety, you'll see a market rise in depression, you'll see a market rise in all sorts of other kinds of issues, you'll see an epidemic of loneliness, and you can blame that on technology, you can blame that on the pandemic, and I think those things contribute, and I think those things contribute massively, and I'm certainly not saying that any mental health issues are just because of humanism, but I think that one of the main problems of the world that we live in is that we put our hopes for happiness on ourselves. And John the Baptist would tell us, that's not the way to joy. Actually, the way to joy is not self-actualization. It's not self-fulfillment. It's not the construction of your own individual identities. The way to joy is putting that joy in someone else. That's what John the Baptist would teach us. And I hope that's a relief to you. Is it a relief to you? It's a relief to me. 
I mean, most of us have had some kind of experience of overly identifying with something about ourselves, yes? Most of us have maybe overly identified with our jobs. So I'm defined by what I do. And then you lose your job, and then what happens? Or most of us uh, find ourselves uh, overly identifying, say, with maybe our wealth or our fashion or our education. I mean, how long does it take, by the way, for education to become outdated? I mean, it's pretty quick. You spend a lot of money on your education, and then 10 years later, you're like, people believe this now? What just happened? If you overly identify on any of these sorts of things that maybe like have the, have the, uh, the sense of, of accomplishment, our personal accomplishment about them, well, it's so easy for those things to change. And here's John the Baptist telling us, I know that we have lots of failed attempts at happiness. And here's what I want to say to you this morning. Put your hope and your joy in the one whose love for you never changes. In fact, if you wanted to like, actually parse the difference between happy and, happiness and joy, which a lot of people do, by the way. How many of you have ever heard some version of uh, happiness is different than joy? Anyone ever heard some version of that? Um, and some, some of us have heard that happiness is actually fleeting, whereas joy is actually lasting. Well, maybe here's another difference. What if happiness is mainly found in self-actualization or the self? And what if joy is mainly found in the other? Uh, here's the poet. You remember I said we might need poets to help us understand joy maybe more than theologians? Um, I don't really believe that, but here's the poet, Christian Wyman, riffing on happiness and joy. Here's what he says. He says, happiness involves enlarging or securing the self. You're happy when you pay off your mortgage or get a raise. Joy, by contrast, always involves some loss of self. From the parent reveling in the autonomous existence of her child to the contemplative lost in religious ecstasy. Now, I wouldn't build an entire case on happiness and joy from that quotation, but I think that Christian Wyman has something right. I think that maybe loss of self is part of joy. And if it is, then I say John the Baptist, he's the master at it. You remember that John the Baptist talked about joy being in the bridegroom, Jesus, not joy in all the gathered throng that was coming toward him to get dunked. So joy is not about self-actualization, self-fulfillment. It actually comes from outside of us. I think when you think about joy, sometimes you think, well, it's something that comes from inside. And John the Baptist would teach us and say, no, it doesn't come from inside. It comes from outside of us. We are not agents of our own joy. Let's turn back to the text. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. And now you can see um, from the screen that make straight the way for the Lord is actually a quotation. And what's it a quotation of? It's a quotation of Isaiah 40. 
and they and, and maybe make straight for the, the way for the Lord is maybe the most important verse in this entire section. That verse, uh, make straight the way for the Lord from Isaiah 40. Uh, we should look at Isaiah 40 because basically what what why John the Baptist is so joyful is because he knows that a greater and more beautiful reality is coming to take over the universe. He just happens to be the one who gives voice to this coming reality. Uh, let's look at John chapter 40 for a moment. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places the plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 40. What is happening in these verses is Isaiah is calling for a straight highway in the desert, and he's calling to mind the first exodus, the one we talked about earlier in the year. Do you remember when Moses you know, uh, brings the people of God from, back from their exile in Egypt? Do everyone remember that story? Ten Commandments, you know, some of you saw that movie. Um, some of you saw Prince of Egypt. No? Yes? No one? No one's with me. Okay, anyway. Or some of, some of you are with me or some of you feel embarrassed for me. That's fine, by the way. Um, anyway, you know, like, make straight the way for the Lord, calling a straight highway in the desert. Isaiah is calling to mind the first exodus, the one we talked about earlier in the year. In Isaiah 40, Isaiah is talking about Yahweh actually returning to Israel, bringing the exiles like lambs in his arms, okay? Isaiah 40. And John the Baptist knows this, and also understands Isaiah 40, but he understands Isaiah 40 to not just be about Yahweh coming back to Jerusalem, but about Yahweh coming to us through Jesus. He understands that, at least to a certain degree. He understands that Jesus is coming to rescue us, this final exodus from our Egypt, the Egypt of sin and death. And and we know, of course, that he does that through Jesus, the suffering servant who is crucified on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. It's this son that Jesus, uh, Jesus, that John the Baptist is friends to. It's this son, Jesus, that he's the one who gives John the joy. It's this son, Jesus, the son of God, that John will later testify as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the one who will set the universe back to rights. Jesus is the one who brings the joy because Jesus brings with him the rippling, vivid, life-infused kingdom of God. That's where joy comes from. It comes from the kingdom. It comes from the king who comes down the highway, making his way to you and me with joy in his right hand and joy in his left. Who wants joy? You can have it. You can have it. You can have joy. It comes from me. It doesn't come from inside of you. It doesn't come from your own agency. It actually comes from the king. Which is why C.S. Lewis tells us joy is never in our power. And which is why the poet Christian Wyman says, joy, there is always an element of being seized by joy. Which makes sense. Because think about the most joyous moments of your life. Think about them for a moment. I mean, aren't they always 
at least to a certain degree, about someone else. I mean, think about it. The most joyous occasions of your life, aren't they to a certain degree about someone else? Which is why I think uh, we hear these aphoristic stories about wealthy men and women who on their deathbeds who say they wish they spent more time with their children or with their friends or at least see that they wish that they hadn't worked as hard. You see, the most joyous occasions of our lives are usually not what we individually accomplish. The most joyous occasions of our lives are kind of hearkening back to Christian women, the autonomous establishment of our children, when we see our children thriving, or when we see our spouse or our friends recognized for their brilliance. Uh, joy comes to us unexpectedly when we least anticipate it, and it comes to us from the outside. It comes to us when we see something or experience something or see a friend or, or whatnot. I remember once giving a significant financial gift to a friend out of prompting. The Lord told us to do it. It was a lot of money. But I remember giving it to him, and all of a sudden I was seized with joy. I wept with joy. Joy was not in my power. It was given to me. I was seized by it. Um, and joy very much is a lot like being saved. It's like being seized by something that comes to us through grace. Just like our salvation in Christ, joy is grace. And we almost need to do nothing to earn it. But we do need to hold on to joy. And probably listening, and maybe you're listening and you're thinking, well, I like that joy. I like the John the Baptist joy, the joy that, that is not self-actualization, but actually is located in Jesus. Well, how do, I, how do I do that? How do I hold on to joy? Can I be as joyous as John the Baptist? The answer is yes. And here's how. Let's look at the last few verses. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He's the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Um, this is how John is responding to the Jews questioning. They're on the hunt for his authority. They're on the hunt for his identity. But John is like saying, no, 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 no. Uh, my identity, my authority rests in someone whose sandals I am not even unworthy to untie. For John the Baptist, this is how exalted Jesus is. I mean, like, so we live in Chicago. So uh, shoes are sort of gross in Chicago, but they were super gross in the first century world. Like super, super, super gross. In fact, they were so disgusting uh, that at the end of the day, uh, Jewish slaves weren't even allowed to touch them. It couldn't be a Jew who could touch the sandals because they were so gross. But here's John saying, no, 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 no. I am so happy there is one who is greater than me and so much greater than me that I won't, I'm not even unworthy to untie his sandals. We hold on to joy by constantly putting ourselves in the presence of the one who is way greater than us. Joy is not, doesn't come from, I am the greatest. It comes from, he's the greatest. That's where joy comes from. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. You might think, because the world might teach you this, that you being the greatest gives you the joy. 
uh, rather than being with one greater than us activating our joy, um, how does being one with one greater than you activate your joy? Um, let me explain that. Two words, Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. All right. How many of you know who Taylor Swift is? <laughs> Some of us are like, unfortunately, no. Some of us are like, yes, I'm a Swifty. You know, like I wear a Taylor Swift t-shirt under all my clothing, you know. Anyway, um, so anybody ever notice how nuts the crowd goes when they pan to Taylor Swift at an NFL football game? Anyone ever notice that? Everyone ever, every, anyone ever watch a football game and go, why does this feel like it's more about Taylor Swift than the football? Anybody? Yeah, um, some of us are like, yeah, why, why? Uh, anybody ever talk to a Swifty? There are Swifties in the room. You don't have to raise your hand and identify yourself. And I'm certainly not condemning you at all. I like Taylor Swift. I like her music. I mean, I, I also remember how the city shut down uh, when she came to do her sold-out shows, you know, like downtown. Do you remember that? Uh, and guess what happens? I, I recently heard the other day that there was like the Shake It Off event. Does anyone know this song, Shake It Off? Some of you? Does anybody want to sing it? <laughs> Microphone? Anyone? Shake it off, shake it off, right? Yeah, there, there we go, Megan. Shake it off. So I heard that they pulled this Shake It Off stunt, and, and like so many people participated in the Shake It Off stunt that it registered as a small earthquake. And I heard that. You ever see Taylor Swift and you see fans of Taylor Swift with Taylor Swift, do they look sad? They never do. They look really, really happy. You know, unless they're not a fan, you know. But usually they're very, very happy. And I think it goes down to a human instinct that we all have. We want to be in awe. We want to be in awe. We're made to be awed by someone. We are made to be awed by someone. We're made to be starry-eyed. We're made to be with someone who is greater than us, who is higher than us, who is high and lifted up. And the good news is that for those of you, because, I mean, like, listen, Taylor Swift is never going to be your friend, okay? For those of you who have been hoping or hoping that she would do a concert in your living room, that probably won't happen unless she's on the state fair circuit, Okay? It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. But he, here's the good news of the gospel. John the Baptist knows that the one greater than anyone ever in the whole universe lives inside you. He's with you. And he loves you. See, look at the highway imagery again. Notice how there's like this double thing happening in Isaiah chapter 40. Um, we not only have roads and valleys um, that are raised up and mountains that are made low in a very real way. Isaiah 40 is telling us that the re unstoppable reality of the kingdom of Jesus is coming. He's the one who makes the crooked way straight. He makes a level accessible path to everyone, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. That's the good news of the gospel. It's available to everyone. But the highway imagery is double because there's something you and I need to do too. We need to make our hearts highways. That's part of what Isaiah 40 is telling us. And that's part of what John the Baptist's words to us are. You want the joy, make your heart a highway. Let your heart be the highway that the king can come down on with joy in his right and his left hand. And how do you make your heart a highway? Well, you receive him. 
John, uh, John the Evangelist writes this in, earlier in the chapter. Uh, chapter 1, he writes, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, and how do you receive him? Well, you believe in his name. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. How do you become radiant with joy as John the Baptist was? You receive him. You make your heart a highway. You receive him. You believe in him. You make the overweening, beautiful reality of Jesus the most important reality, the one that stands above all all of our failed attempts at happiness. You make him the one that gives you the joy. You receive him. You make straight the way for the Lord. I don't imagine that John the Baptist was actually uh, harsh, fire and brimstone. I mean, maybe sometimes. I imagine that he, his voice rang like a bell with joy. That's how I imagine him. And I think that our invitation during Advent is to heed not just the, the invitation to repent, but also to open our hearts, to receive. Um, So some of you are here and you've never done this before. You've never received Jesus. You've never believed in him. You've never said, okay, I want that joy because I've tried to make a life of my own and I realize that I can't do it. So I need you to come do it for me. I need you to be more important than actually me. And so maybe this morning it's time to do that. Maybe this morning, uh, Advent is the time to remind ourselves that our saving is not a thing we do on our own. It's the one who comes to save us, the one who does it solely and purely by grace, who comes down the highway with joy in his right and his left hand. Maybe we need to do that now. Could we all stand for a moment if we're able? I want to I want to just invite us to do two things. Um, number one, I want to invite us, if we've never received the king into our hearts, that we might do it for the first time today. But also, um, what I want to invite us to do is to wait on the Lord for a moment and to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us with joy. Because if it is true that joy is not in our power, and if it is true that in joy there is an element of being seized, then the Holy Spirit can come and do that now. It would be nice to have a little more joy as we walk out, yes? And so let's bow our heads and I'll pray. Um, And we do this thing here in the vineyard. If you're new with us, we just hold out our hands as if we were receiving. Because the body posture actually um, often affects the way that we feel in our hearts. And so let's just hold out our hands for a moment. If you are here and you have never received the king who brings the joy with before, then would you do that now? Let me just, would you pray this prayer with me? I have tried over and over again, Jesus, to make my own way. And now I want you to come. You who've made a way for me, come into my heart. I receive you. I believe in you. I make you the most important reality in my life. Would you, by your grace and by your spirit, help me to do that?
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And if for the rest of us, I pray, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Come and fill us with your joy. Fill us with the lasting, durable emotion that comes to us because we believe in a God who will fulfill his promises to us. Give us your joy. Come Holy Spirit, come. Fill us with your joy now.